This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, welcome. You're listening to The Cable. We are live on DAB Digital Radio. I say we, I'm Guy Johnson. I'm alongside Alex Steele. She is over in New York, 5 p.m. in the city of London. We have got a busy few hours ahead of us, Alex. Uh, in around 20 minutes' time, Christine Lagarde is going to be speaking. She's doing uh, an event here at London at the London Stock Exchange with Manu Shafiq. Uh, then, of course, 2 p.m. Eastern time, 7 p.m. here in the UK, we get the Fed decision coming out with a press conference to follow. It was going to be a Fed day today. It turned out, though, to be a bit of an ECB day. There was an emergency meeting called a little bit earlier on. I'm not sure how much it achieved, uh, but we have seen a big move today. In Italian bonds, the BTPs down by 36 basis points today. Huge move. Uh, we're well below 4%. I just feel like that can change at 2 p.m. Like, we can definitely erase that 44 basis points to the downside on the 10-year BTPs and then go back up to 4. I feel like it could definitely happen. Um, I think it depends on how the Fed talks about the future of rate hikes and how fast they're going to go. It's going to be pretty exciting. I feel like there hasn't been this much excitement for a Fed meeting in a while. I think it's a really tricky one to call. I think the 75 actually is the done deal. That's that's the bit that I think a lot of people have now kind of put to bed, priced in, call it what you will, following the Wall Street Journal piece Monday. The real trick now, I think, is to figure out where the Fed goes next. And the summary of economic projections, the dot plot, I think will give us some clues uh, as to where we go next. It was interesting, Ira Jersey, just a moment ago, talking to us on Bloomberg Television, saying that what we could get today also uh, is a 75 basis point hike. And then a line in the, uh, in the statement basically indicating that maybe the Fed is happy to go even more aggressively further down the road, which will lead the market maybe to price 100. Mm-hmm. That would be a big move. That would be a huge move. Um, and you have to wonder if that's part and parcel of why the ECB called their emergency meeting today. I appreciate that nothing came out of it, um, uh, long on words, short on action. But it did have a desired effect within the market, and that it very much closed those spreads um, somewhat. So I wonder if that's what it was front-running that hawkish tilt in the statement, potentially. Well, let's get some headlines now. Charlie Pellets standing by. I thank you very much, Guy Johnson. While all of the focus very much on the Federal Reserve in the United States, the ECB in Europe, I want to begin with petrol prices because prices at the pumps, not only for petrol, but also for diesel, surging today to another record, pushing the cost of filling a typical family car to almost 103 pounds. This according to the RAC motoring organization. Now, the average cost of petrol up to 186.59 pence a liter. Diesel 19248 filling the tank of a 55 liter vehicle will cost 103 pounds in petrol 106 pounds for diesel RAC spokesman Simon Williams says the average price of petrol has set a record every day for the last month Sources tell Bloomberg the Biden administration will announce as soon as today 537 million pounds in weapons and equipment for Ukraine, including for the first time vehicle-mounted Harpoon anti-ship missiles. HSBC Holdings has fired a London trader after scrutinizing the personal mobile phones of some staff in a sign of increased pressure on banks to closely monitor business communications. And UK temperatures may hit 34 degrees this week. 
like a once rare level that is becoming more common on the back of global warming. Before 2017, the country had seen the mercury reach 34 degrees in June on just three occasions on record, according to the UK's Met Office. Since then, it has happened twice and could now do so again. The heat comes as even warmer weather sweeps across continental Europe, putting extra pressure on power prices as people turn up the air conditioning to keep cool. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, stay cool yourself. Back to you now in London. He's always cool. Yeah, of He's course he cool. is. <laughs> you know, obviously. Yeah, not that, sure that's, that's true. That's a joke. That, yeah, no, know. no, we were kidding. We were I kidding. Know. Alex cool. is, that's Alex being snarky, to use her language, with me. <laughs> you got to love it. No, but no joking aside, 86 is hot. That's Fahrenheit. That's how I'm going to interpret it. I understand you all do Celsius. That's hot. Good luck. It is. No, it's really hot. I, for the UK, where we don't do air conditioning or anything like that, that's uh, that's a that's an interesting one. But but it, I was reading in Madrid that it's kind of 40s right now, which Yeesh. is a bit of a problem. That's that's pretty hot. Anyway, uh, talking of temperature temperatures rising nice. uh, to near boiling points, that could be maybe okay. our way of transitioning to the ECB. So today, I anticipated that it would be a day dominated by the Fed. I thought we'd come in. I thought we'd talk about the Fed, maybe look ahead to the the Bank of England, maybe a a thought about the BOJ coming up Friday. But no, the ECB decided it was going to call an emergency meeting. We all got very, very excited. We anticipated that we would hear something on fragmentation. We anticipated that there would be a policy, a fully formed one, that would deal with such fragmentation. But no, we didn't get such a fully formed policy. We got staff being directed to create such a tool to deal with fragmentation. Fragmentation for those in the, the uninitiated is basically the the bond yields that are charged to Germany by the market versus the bond yields charged to say say Italy. And and as they blow out, as they get wider, i.e. Germany is charged one percent, Italy is charged four percent, that's a problem because it means that monetary policy by the ECB is not being transmitted in the same way to different parts of the Euro. But anyway, we didn't get a fully formed policy. And now we've got a bit of a problem. When are we going to get such a fully formed policy? What did today signal uh, about how concerned the ECB is? Uh, Marcus Ashworth joins us now from Bloomberg Opinion. Always cool. Marcus, what did you make of what we got today? Now that the dust has settled, what just happened? Uh, Nothing. It's a nothing burger. And they got us all excited when they could have added, could have sent an one line email or even better, just attached it on the bottom of the statement uh, from last week's um, you know, governing council meeting where they should have raised rates, but didn't. So, um, you know, it's all very exciting. I think Alex is right to point out they've done this on Fed Day, but you can't do this thing. We're too sensitive. We can't handle this. If you, you get us all excited to have emergency meetings and then essentially well, tell us what we already knew. Okay, so th- this begs the question that did Christine Lagarde think that she had sort of the support to actually do something today, and then she didn't. Is, is, is that what we take away from this meeting? I don't know what we take away from it. We take That's away fair. from they're definitely thinking about thinking about something, uh, and they have, they've mandated staffers to go away and come back with something exciting. Um, which I which, totally agree. Just, said, like, send an email. They told us two things. One, that the... the, the well, supposedly dormant PEP program, the pandemic QE, which now is going to be changed, instead of pandemic is going to be periphery, um, is going to be able flexible. Well, it's not actually, you look at what really how the PEP has worked, it's not that flexible at all. So maybe they might make it slightly more flexible 
uh, but not really tell us how. Well, we knew that absolutely already. So that's great. Secondly, they are going to come up with something wonderful and new. Well, yeah. Okay. Stop talking about it. Do something. So the point now is that July 21st, when they will be hiking, they promised us 25 basis points. They should also be telling us definitively what this new program will be. Now, we can get into what I think will be in it. Uh, if you want to, it's not desperately exciting or it's very complicated, but they've got to get on and do something because the Fed tonight is probably going to raise 75 basis points. The Bank of England tomorrow might raise 25, possibly 50. Who hasn't raised here? Who hasn't done a thing yet? The ECB. Not good. Okay, so where does that where does that leave us? Are we going to find a fully formed policy from the ECB by the July meeting? If they do have a fully formed policy, can they raise rates aggressively at that point? Do the two need to go hand in hand? Well, you, you can. The trouble is they're trying to do three things at once, which is raise rates eventually, uh, stop QE, which they did last week, but now they're going to have to restart it. Uh, and then they're taking away all these discounts on super cheap borrowing, which has a real risk here because it, it's going to encourage a lot of particularly Italian banks to collapse their balance sheet because they're no longer being paid to borrow lots of money and then do something within what potentially could be a recession. So why would you want to have all this excess borrowing? You'd collapse your balance sheet, which means possibly they're going to reduce their own holdings of BTPs just at the wrong point. Doing all three things at once, risks a credit crunch, risks uh, you know the panic we're seeing in the bond markets here. So they need a big stick to wave to try and say, look, we are going to have to raise rates to two inflation. However, if it gets a bit out of out of sync here we have the ability to come and, and tighten things back in it's not perfect nothing ever is in ecb land but they could have done this better but they've been forced into trying to say to do, they're mm-hmm. doing something without telling us what it's going to be and we all know the legalities of this are going to be horrendous so is this a four percent on B- if we get quickly to four percent on btps or if the spread blows out between buns and btps to 300 basis points quickly like is it the rate of change that freaks them out or is it the absolute level because then basically you're just going to have the markets push around the ecb in like a de facto yield curve control or something yeah i mean it's a bit of both really because obviously the speed of change is, is you're right to point out is is obviously where they lose they've lost control however if it stays up this high for too long it then becomes a debt sustainability problem because you know they have raised uh well so they have managed to lower the average coupon extend duration over the last two or three years of basically free money or negative money um but that's no longer the case. They've got an awful lot to, 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 to refund, a lot of uh, maturities coming off, which they're going to have to, to borrow and get on with it because they are behind in their borrowing program this year. And let's face it, the debt capital markets are next best thing to close at the moment because of all this volatility. If we go throughout the rest of the summer without the ECB convincing the markets there isn't uh, a problem with its Italy funding and, and therefore you know there isn't any yeah. new issue coming we're in a real big problem. Bear in mind, Draghi's only around for a maximum one year. So we've got a real time decay on that as well. So, you know, this is a, a, a problem now, which is every chance of getting worse if they don't convince the markets they're on top of this. What is, Lug- what is Lagarde's job here? Is it fragmentation huh. or is it fighting inflation? Well, does she, it's does both. Does she have to prioritise? No, she can't. She's got to do both at the same time. Can you do um, both and- at the same time? Well, she's a synchronized swimmer. She's used to doing things in coordination. Let's hope she can. She, it's not a question of okay. Okay, but how does that to. how does that actually work? You, if you, one of the things that I'm hearing is that the ECB is just going to buy more BTPs. How do you how do you 
deal with inflation at the same time as buying more bonds? Well, there are, there are a couple of things to hear. Firstly, not to get too top gun here, but you know, essentially, the Fed has has created jet wash, which has put the ECB in a flat spin. So they've got to do something about controlling uh, the plane, so to speak, and get it back on track. They've got to uh, somehow fund Italy. Now, there's two ways of doing that. Either they can give money to Italy in a fiscal manner, and therefore they don't have to issue as many bonds. Hmm. That would be tricky, but that's that. one way of going about they, it. There's no well, way that the German Constitutional Court will let them do that. But, I mean, it, well, with, the, with, with the green transition stuff, they like, don't they, aren't they kind of doing that in yeah, some Yeah, but not capacity? by the ECB. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, no, but the next, as I'm saying, not by the ECB, but by next gen. They've done the next gen okay. EU 800 billion. They did 200 billion large to Italy. So we're so going to spend more money to deal with inflation. That I, that's the that's exactly the problem that the the US is now figuring out is that it that it overspent. Or much more likely, they have to do it the monetary way, which is they have to essentially scoop up Italian bonds. So somehow Italy's got to be able to issue. Very important. This they've got to be able to issue to repay the the, the stuff that's maturing. At the same time, as the market knows, there is the that that buyer of last resort, which is obviously the ECB, and that, these are are difficult things. They may have to do all these things all at once if it gets difficult, because there's such a borrowing need. Nearly a trillion euros over the next four years is what Italy has to refinance in bonds. You know that was at negative rates only six months, nine months ago. Mm-hmm. It's now very much not at it. It's at three percent, and that becomes a point where all of a sudden to get to debt sustainability. Italy's going to have to run a positive budget surplus. It's possible, but it means a very tight fiscal situation in Italy with Mario Draghi Mm -hmm. about to exit stage left. I mean, it really helps that every single human being that I know is going to um, Italy, (laughs) it feels like, (laughs) this summer. Um, Thank you, Parity. So I guess, what does success then look like for the ECB in this scenario? Like, let's say everything is perfect and everything happens well and you have the fiscal stimulus that needs to do what it needs to do and everything, budget deficits, yada, yada. What's success? Success is getting, I say, 10-year yields back below, I would say 3% would be a a nice way of looking at it. Mm -hmm. So a long way to go, but, you know, markets have moved. I'm not saying that Italy's at the right price. It's definitely overshot, but then everything's overshot. The dollar's too strong. You know, everything in the world is, is selling off bond-wise. It's U.S. Treasury short end is gone. You know, that's why this is a global investor route out of bonds, particularly what were negative yielding bonds in euros. And Italy, obviously, is the one that's just gone closest to the wire because it's goes third largest debt in the world and its economy is not strong. So it's obviously front and center. The ECB has got to convince the market it's on top of it, that it will continue hiking interest rates, start to hike interest rates, and take stimulus away at the same time as still giving stimulus to Italy. It's a contradiction in terms. They have no other choice of doing it. It's all their own mistake. I wish them best of luck. If <laughs> if the Fed... I love markets. Say the Fed did 75. Say the Fed hinted at 100 coming down the pike. Yeah, ouch. Can, ouch, can, ouch. Can the ECB control that? Well, no. Uh, it puts them into that jet wash again, which is which is why they, they came up with this meeting today and hoped it would convince people that it was it was enough. Now, to be fair, the bond market's telling you it might be because they yeah, they tied in. I'm surprised it's stuck spot. today. It, yeah, me it, too. I, that's just a short squeeze. It's just a okay, short squeeze. Enough. Plus, if the ECB are clever, and I don't know, I don't know anything about, they might have been buying some stuff themselves. Who knows? Let's mm-hmm. just let's just uh, not be too cynical there. However, the point is, it's got to stay carrying on going down. It's at 380. It's got to get to 350. Um, 
this is a difficult week. We've got, as I said, not just the Fed, though. The Fed's clearly the, the, the big mover here. What happens if the Bank of Japan does something on Friday and shifts? I mean, that... What yeah, could they do? Exactly. Like, I was going to go on like, to that. You've got, the you got the BOJ and the, the Bank of England still to come. Yeah, let's hope the Bank of England is, is an irrelevance. It normally is. But uh, the Bank of Japan has the chance of potentially tail risk if they suddenly decide, which I think would be a huge mistake for them, of lifting the 25 basis point yield curve control and say putting up to 50, which would go to in a heartbeat and just be a bigger problem for them. But just say they do it, they break it a bit like the Swiss uh, franc peg was broken. That will be a world of pain for the world. What? But isn't there going to come a point where the BOJ is going to have to do something like that unless the US tips into a recession? You know, I lived in Japan for a while. I've worked for a lot of Japanese banks. You know what? No. They don't work like the rest of us. They don't care as much about the currency in this context because bear in mind it's an export nation. I think they've done a better job in securing oil and gas supplies than many nations have. Though, look, you know they've still got a huge amount to do because they are very much, uh, you know, resource poor. But at the same time, their stock market's sort of holding up, and that's actually the one really to watch. They they can control their bond market and possibly their equity market. They can't control their currency market as well. One of the three's got to give at the moment. It's the yen. But they don't have a big inflation problem. They have no inflation. That's been their problem for many, many years. So the risk of them pumping in a bit of inflation is nowhere near as threatening as it is to say the Europe or indeed the States. Do you think that's what happens? Do you think they just they just go their own way this this Friday? Do you, like how how do you handicap the risk of something happening here? I think almost certainly they'll they'll hold out. Um, but as a trade. I mean, you've got a one in 10 chance you make a lot of money. And that's How exactly what Fitz Blue Bay said. How many big figures with the yen move on the back? Ah, uh, be careful. The, 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 the yen may move in a different direction because um, there's a huge short in yen, as there is in sterling for that matter. And at some point, some someone's going to get squeezed on that. So the bond yields can go up and that doesn't mean the yen weakens it or, or, or it could do something completely different. Oh, that's interesting. OK, well, that adds to more uncertainty. Great. Um, can we go to the Fed for a sec? Before uh, I know we're going to hear from Christine Lagarde in just a second, but um, what? How do you manage the risk right right now around the Fed, in terms of <laughs> the markets repriced so fast? Um, I feel like the markets sort of repriced for future quickly too. How do you do it? Look, I, I, I'm not really very sure why the Fed is leaked this sort of we're going to do 75 to the Wall Street Journal and everyone's taking this verbatim. I think it's a mistake. That I we think took it Powell verbatim, or that they this. did it. <laughs> Uh, well, we could be both actually, but let's hope, let's just presume that it was done deliberately and that they will hike 75. Clearly, the markets will be very disappointed they don't, and that will be another communication issue. But I, I, they've handled things pretty well so far, so I'm going to give them the benefit of doubt on that. I don't think they should have done it, but let's presume they, they do the 75. It's more than what Powell says about future hikes, uh, and that is incredibly difficult for the world to handle. I mean, it's not just Europe or Japan here, we're talking about emerging markets in particular. So, you know, the Fed are doing what they think that is necessary for the US economy, not for the global one. At some point, it will come relevant for them because the rest of the global economy will be in such bad straits, it'll start hurting <laughs> the US export machine. But mm -hmm. for the moment, it's very difficult to handle the risk. I mean, how do you trade bonds here? The world wants out of bonds in a heartbeat. They want out of everything. They don't like the asset class. They've suddenly realized rates are placed way too low and they have to go miles higher. In a, in, a, in a rush. And that is obviously what's causing problem, in, you know, back to Italy. But it's exactly the same if you're trying to trade, you know, two to five year US treasuries. How do you get out of the way of this thing? It just doesn't stop. Mm -hmm. It's a juggernaut. So what do you do if you're the Bank of England? 
<laughs> well, you're sort of picking the middle as ever. And I you think sort of hope that people I forget think, about you for tomorrow, right? <laughs> yeah, let's exactly. Um, I, I think they'll do 25, uh, which is probably the right sort of thing to do. They've already flagged up the risk um, that if they were to carry on hiking, it might put the UK economy into recession. The government has taken a lot of that risk away by doing that fiscal package uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, so they can hike with more confidence now. Uh, I don't think they should do 50. But if the Fed come in, do 75, say they're going to do 100 next time around. Does that put pressure on, on the Bank of England? And indeed, Sterling, we see at 120. I mean, I don't say the Bank of England don't care about Sterling, but they they don't care about it as much as clearly the UCB does about the euro. But, you know, at some point you could argue, do they need a super weak sterling? No, they don't. It's going to keep on increasing the imported inflation story. So could they do 50? I think there'll be a split vote, possibly three-way again. Uh, yeah. And I think they'll, they'll settle on 25. But there is a risk of 50. I have to say, last time around, I thought the vote split would have caused a more hawkish reaction in the market, but she certainly, but we certainly didn't get that. Uh, so we'll watch out very carefully uh, to see exactly what we get tomorrow. The statement could be absolutely fascinating. Um, Marcus, I'm not actually just going to let you go. Just hold your horses there. I think Christine Lagarde has just started oh. speaking at a live event. She's, she's basically on stage at the London School of Economics. She's with uh, Manoush Shafiq, Dame Shafiq. Um, and after today, I think this is really worth listening in on. So I think let, let's turn our attention to what Christine Lagarde is saying here in London right now. She never, ever loses sight of the moral compass that determines her action. She's a fantastic team player, which, consider for a second, is not such an obvious thing to do when you are also one of the best leaders. She's all that. And I'm very, very proud to have received this doctorate from her hands, but I'm also very proud and very honored by her friendship. So enough about Minouche now. <laughs> but, yeah. Well, Christine Lagarde is speaking. Uh, it looks like she was and speaking, though, about uh, Manu Shafiq, uh, uh, and then she got an honorary uh, diploma there. That's, but why she, that's why she's at the LSE this evening. She's getting mm -hmm. an honorary doctorate from Manu Shafiq. Manu Shafiq obviously used to be uh, on the MPC at the Bank of England. Um, so I, it looks like they're, they're basically lowering the sound on the applause. Uh, I'm not sure if she's still speaking. Um, I mean, her, her, lips her lips are moving. Her lips are moving. Okay, well, let, let's uh, go back and hopefully listen in to what she's saying. In very difficult circumstances, we're sometimes making decisions about personal issues was very demanding, very difficult, and where she kept all of us on the right track. So thank you, Minouche, for all that. As policymakers... Minouche referred to my role as policymaker. One tends to focus more, I can assure you that I do that at the moment, uh, on the present and worry about the future, more so than we consider what we can learn from the past. And that is especially the case in my current role, where everything works through expectations of our future policy actions. But there is often merit in looking back on the road that you've traveled, as history can provide useful lessons about the best course of action for today's challenges. And indeed, given the turbulent times we have all lived through, 
policymakers have gained what might seem like an unlucky area of expertise. And I have certainly gone through that path myself in the last few years, as indicated by Minouche. It is about managing crisis one after the other and facing a succession of shocks, which when compounded are quite a mountain to climb and to overcome. During my years of public service, first as a minister in the French government, then as managing director of the IMF, and now as president of the ECB, we have had to face the global financial crisis, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe, the pandemic, and now the war in Ukraine. So I have a little saying on my desk that my staff actually gave me, which says, we cannot make an appointment this week. There is yet another crisis to deal with. <laughs> that is what I have lived through most recently. So along the way, I've had the good fortune to have benefited from the wisdom of some exceptional characters, some of whom are actually in this room and certainly include you, Minouche. And we went through the hardest times. And working with them, I have come to find that there are certain qualities that distinguish sound policymaking at moments of crisis, qualities that remain as valid today as they did when I started out. These are qualities of courage, consistency, and compassion. Those who know me well will remember that I often use those alliteration of C's or D's or L's. This time it's C's. Maybe you will remember one of them. Crisis always come at times of profound uncertainty because they're never the same twice. And what you think you might have applied today for what happened back in the 70s, for instance, is not necessarily going to be appropriate or applicable. And faced with uncertainty, you must have courage. The courage to act even when you do not have the full information at hand and to change your mind when the facts become clearer. Lord Keynes put that beautifully, I will not quote him again. But George Bernard Shaw, one of the co-founders of the LSE, put this point the best. I quote, progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. But courage in and of itself is not sufficient. It has to be paired with consistency. Crisis call for bold decisions and flexible minds but they cannot become a license for any type of action. What anchors you on the right path is consistency with the mandate that you have been given by the public, the mandate. And how do you make sure that you stay true to the spirit and not only to the letter of that mandate, combining courage and consistency? And the answer to that is compassion. The compassion to understand the impact of your actions on the public whom you ultimately serve. We are often diverted by some sideshows, but we have to focus on the public that we actually serve. There is no such a thing as perfect decision on, in policymaking, but decisions anchored in these three principles or qualities of courage, 
of consistency and compassion will probably ensure that you head out in the right direction and that you have the humility to change course if and when that is needed. And that is the path embraced by the LSE when it was established some more actually than 125 years ago. Its founders sought to improve society by working as per the institution's motto, to know the cause, the causes of things. They had the courage to seek the uncompromising path of truth wherever it led. They were consistent with their mission and they had compassion for the people whose lives they could change and they stayed true to those founding values. Their shared history holds lesson for policymakers today and together we have much to gain by following their proud example. I wish all the young people who are sitting or standing in this room to actually be inspired by that compass, by those three qualities and principles that I have identified. It is very easy to be tempted away. Stay true to them and you will go in the right direction. That is my firm belief after more than 40 years of service, portion in the private sector, but a good chunk of my years in the public sector as well. So with that in mind, I would like to express my immense gratitude to the university for this prestigious honor and to you, Minush, especially as my dear, dear friend. Thank you. That was Christine Lagarde speaking at the London School of Economics. It's also on Live Go if you're on your terminal and you want to hear more. Uh, Christine Lagarde, president of the ECB, uh, getting an award from the LSC. She's giving a lot of uh, yep. praise to Manoush Shafiq, uh, joining us uh, there when she was making her speech, and also talking yep. a lot about crisis, courage, and compassion, how to sort of create policy, basically. So this is on a day when, when we've had an emergency meeting of the ECB. No mention of that. Uh, hints at it may be but nothing really for the market to take away from that speech. It'd be interesting to see whether or not there is a kind of follow-up on the Q&A, uh, mm -hmm. whether or not actually she delivers something there, because today has been in some ways a bit of a mystery from the market's point of view when it comes to the ECB. Uh, I, an emergency meeting called, a sense of panic created, and not much delivered as a result uh, and you do have to wonder whether or not Lagarde and the ECB are on the back foot, whether mm -hmm. they are, as, as Marcus Ashworth was putting it just a moment ago, in the jet wash of the Fed, whether or not actually they're in control of their own destiny right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, to give credit where it's due, I mean, BTPs did fall by 44 basis points on the long end. They're down now by about 36. Um, U.S. bonds kind of following suit here, the long end of the curve backed by about eight basis points lower headed into the Fed. Uh, you're looking at a pretty solid rally in the equity market in Europe as well as here in the U.S., but it feels yeah. like we're, we're, we're prepping for where we're going to be at two o'clock uh, when the Fed makes their announcement. Lots of things could change at that point. Let's get some headlines here uh, with Charlie Pell. I thank you very much indeed. 90 minutes away from that Fed decision here in the United States. Some of 
of the other stories and headlines that we're monitoring. Russia has further tightened its grip on European energy markets as it curbed gas shipments while French President Emmanuel Macron insists that Western capitals keep a channel open to the Kremlin. Shipments via the key Nord Stream pipeline dropped by about 60%, a move that Germany's vice chancellor says is probably politically motivated. Meanwhile, President Xi Jinping reiterated China's support for Russia's security concerns in a phone call with Vladimir Putin. Ryanair Holdings has dropped a controversial requirement for South African travelers to the UK and Ireland to take a test in Afrikaans to prove their nationality. Europe's largest low-cost airline had imposed the measure to prevent the use of fraudulent passports but drew criticism as the language is only spoken by a minority of the South African population. And Whitbread, the owner of the Premier Inn hotel chain, is reporting what it calls an impressive performance in the first quarter, saying their businesses in the UK and Germany are both trading above expectations. However, it says tight labor supply in the hospitality sector will force the company to raise some wages, which, together with spending on refurbishment and IT investment, will cost up to £30 million. That is the latest from the news desk. Fed Wednesday, Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. Charlie, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, Guy, talking about that um, the gas headline, I think is really interesting because it's things like that that make you think that there's limited ways that inflation can be transitory and why central banks got it so wrong. And when central banks talk about having a handle on inflation and what their read is, it's sort of like, why are we going to trust you if you got the energy crisis so, so wrong? I think it was hard to call the energy crisis. For Ukraine, sure. But there were already signs of other issues cropping up. Absolutely. Um, and and the, the Eurozone certainly is facing an imported inflation issue right now, which could potentially get worse from here. So the news thus far today kind of goes a little bit like this. Gazprom, the giant Russian gas producer, halting uh, another compressor. Basically, these compressors force the gas through the pipelines uh, and, and squeeze that, that flow into Europe. So we're already in a position now where, as, as that gets rolled over, we find ourselves with less gas coming into Europe. Germany's uh, economy minister, Mr. Habeck, saying Russia is now trying to unsettle the European economy, trying to drive up gas prices. Then we get a headline from Uniper, the giant German utility, saying that it has received 25% less gas than agreed with Russia. Uh, this then takes us into sort of contractual territory. Are we actually seeing Russia fulfilling its contractual obligations? It doesn't point in a particularly good direction. The Germans are saying they feel that they do have enough gas right now, uh, and they are certainly searching for extra gas supplies as we see this compressor and its uh, removal from the market uh, taking effect. Rachel Morrison, uh, the person to turn to when you want to know what's happening here. Rachel, just kind of walk us through what is going on here. Is is this compressor being turned off for legitimate reasons, i.e. there's a problem, or is it being turned off for political reasons? That element is hard to tell at the moment. Gazprom said they had a problem with some machinery that Siemens, some turbine machinery that Siemens supplied them with. Siemens agreed that that had been a problem. But today we have Germany saying they think it's political. So it's, it's hard to, to know why Germany is saying that, but it seems as though more details of why they think that will emerge in the following days. That was a view held in Brussels at the beginning of all of this, that 
Putin that Russia were deliberately withholding flows to try to push up gas prices. When you really think about it, it is hard to see why they would do that uh, because they would get less money because they sell less gas, but the gas is at a higher price. So it's not necessarily as simple as it being a good thing for Putin if gas prices are high. But that said, at this point in the conflict, holding that kind of power over Europe by cutting gas supplies, saying this is the summer and this is what we're doing, you know, it can only get worse from here, is quite powerful. Uh, yeah. Um are we sure that Russia hasn't weaponized the gas market in some capacity, knowing the leverage that they have? No, we can't be sure that they haven't weaponized it. It certainly seems that way. It's always difficult to guess what why Putin does what he does. But certainly that has been the effect that gas is weaponized. And we've we've written a lot about how much money Putin gets from selling gas to Europe. So, you know, it clearly is something that um, he wants to sell, but a higher price. And the fact that it's going to be difficult for Europe if and when supplies do get completely cut. I mean, already we've seen a huge price reaction to this today because yeah. markets had started to lull a little bit. It was the summer. But we've, we, and we've also got this outage in America as well, haven't we? Yes. Um, which is which means that the LNG supplies that we had been getting via ship now not going to be arriving, certainly for the next 90 days. We've got the, the Russians turning off a big compressor and we've got this problem in the States. So yes. what guys so, referring to is that Freeport LNG export uh, facility that had a fire and then that was shut. It was going to be three weeks now. It's like 90 days. Yes, that's right. So that takes away, you know, it it shrinks the supply that Europe thought we were so easily going to get our hands on to make up yeah. for for Russian supplies. But storage is full. So we have already got some of that LNG, but it does push up prices. And as colleagues in Asia were telling us today, it all depends on China, what happens with China, how that competition for LNG supplies develops, whether it just pushes prices up further. So if they stay locked down, they don't need as much gas. If they open up, then we're going to need more gas. That's when we have a problem. Exactly. Especially as we are going into winter. So we may have had our easy ride where we could get lots of supplies of gas and that may now be over. Um, I also have to wonder too, like, and this is my nerdy commodity thing, is like where the gas flows are going. So... You, how much do we have enough gas in the world? It's just a matter of where it goes and if those countries can actually import it uh, versus there's just not enough gas. Sometimes I think it's the former and sometimes I think it's the latter. It's kind of hard to get its handle on because like I think it was Germany was saying that they're getting gas from other sources. So that implies that they're just that the trade flows are what's disrupted. Yes, the trade flows are disrupted, but because it's a physical commodity, it's also the physical flows. So I think it's both. I mean, the gas, if you think about it, can already have been, it has already yeah. been extracted and then is stored before it's put into pipelines and it flows through the pipelines, but it's already come out of the ground. So there, you know, Russia has its own gas storage for itself and for export that it extracts. So it probably has full? the gas. Is that full at this point? So, so my understanding was that it's it's not like oil that is that is relatively sort of easy to turn on and off like relatively easy it, like trying to shut down a gas plant is really quite difficult 
and once you've once you've depressurized a pipeline, it's quite difficult to, to turn back on again. Repressurizing it takes quite a while. So, what are the implications from a technical point of view of of, of sort of decompressing this pipeline, turning this compressor station off? You do have valves which you can use to sort of stop the flow of gas. If you think about a tap, where you can kind of stop yep. the valve, but you haven't turned off the water for your whole house. So it's a bit like that, where you can turn off. But does the pressure back up? Do you then have a... Uh, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> They're playing the music. I could get really into the weeds on this. Rachel, thank you very much yeah. indeed. Rachel Morrison, <laughs> see Alex Cools herself and though. There are, there are other people interested in the gas market. We work at Bloomberg, man. This is part okay. of the job. This is true. Uh, okay. We'll take a look at US refineries and their issues that they're confronting politically next. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. So let's continue the energy conversation, but take a lens and look at it here in the U.S. So as President Biden is under so much economic pressure, particularly at prices at the pump, he's really throwing anything he can at refiners and big oil companies. The latest that we learned today is that President Biden sent a letter uh, to certain refiners, um, yes, blaming Vladimir Putin for the rally that we're seeing in the oil price, but also putting a lot of pressure on them, saying that they shouldn't be making record high profits at refiners while the American people are paying about $5 a gallon at the pump. What's the something about this does not compute. So let's bring in Alex Wayne. Um oh, not, covers Is Bloomberg. he there? Is he there? Not sure he's No, there. he's not there. Oh, I'm sorry. I missed that. So here here's my but, fundamental But I'm sure you've got plenty to talk about on uh, this subject. Uh, uh. You were just talking about pressure valves and natural gas flows, man. So okay. you are on the same wavelength here. Um so I think that part of the issue here is that over the years, particularly in 2020, refineries shuttered their doors because there wasn't the demand there. It's quite expensive to keep these things up and running. Plus, a lot of policies in developed markets and developed world is trying to rotate out of fossil fuels. To build a refiner, it's billions of dollars, and it can take up to five to 10 years. No way are any new refiners going to be getting built in this kind of environment. Other refiners going into maintenance, they have to change their stuff, they have to clean the things, and other refiners are changing what they're producing. Rather than gasoline, they're going to produce biofuels because that's what policy and the government says that they want. So to come in and then say, blame them now for doing that, that seems really tricky. And I don't know how you threaten them and then ask for their help at the same time. No, it's a, it's a it's a huge problem, and and it does seem as if the Biden administration has really struggled to get a handle on exactly how it should be dealing with the oil industry. Came into office basically saying, "You guys suck. We're done. We're going to pull the plug on all the new pipelines. Um, we're going to make it harder for you to drill on federal land." Now they've kind of realised they probably need some more oil, but are still not changing the tone. And I the the oil industry is feeling pretty hostile here mm-hmm. in terms of its relationship with the administration. Um, and this at a time when, as well, the, the financial community doesn't particularly want to to see massive yeah. investments, from A, from an ESG point of view, also just from a returns point of view into this industry. The US is probably the only major swing producer with spare capacity at the moment. Yet, the relationship between the administration and the industry really difficult. But the refining spare capacity, it more comes from China. So even if product um, uh, exports pick up in China, then we're still dependent on China for that. So in that sense, we're not as energy independent as we might have thought. Uh, Also, no, we're going to say something? No, I'm sure you have wiser words to say than me. I don't know. I just kind of blanked out. So, uh, (laughs) welcome back, brain fog. When I get so excited, my brain gets overloaded. Um, But I, but in theory, I, I think that the issue is that these conversations probably should have happened six months ago. 
Like, I don't know why we're so behind the curve on the energy inflation story, whether you're an economist, an oil person, a politician, or whatever. But I think you've hit the nail on the head, which is, even if we could produce more oil, we don't have the refining capacity to be able to do that. I don't know how long it takes to build a refinery. Ten years. Five, Precisely. Ten years. Mm-hmm. So what? I, so if Biden were to, if you were to see a windfall tax put on the refiners, and that money is to basically be given to to consumers, mm-hmm. does that really alter the the, the the sort of the landscape here in a significant way? Well, it may be a short term relief to the, the the more stressed in society. But then you come back to this whole idea of, of inflation, and, yeah. and ultimately that could be that could that could be really inflationary. So I, 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 but, but this I, is, I, I think... struggle with what Biden's trying to achieve here, and I'm criticizing an industry that you so desperately need right now, particularly at the pinch point, the biggest pinch point. I'm not sure is is going to achieve very much. But I wonder if it's about having people to blame because this yeah, is I'm sure the, like it is. what has to unfold in essence, right? Is that you have to have demand destruction. It's the only way to solve it. The supply just can't ramp up. So if that's the case, and the Fed's going to be hiking, what, 75, 100, whatever, and get aggressive, how, what kind of recession are we going to be looking at? How bad is it going to get? We're already seeing companies lay off staff and, and freeze hiring. Are we, going to, are, are we going to be in a position where the economy is in kind of bad shape? And then President Biden's going to be up either for 2024 re-election or the midterms in November. And he's going to be like, guys, not my fault. Go ahead and blame Jay Powell and go ahead and blame the refiners and the oil companies and Vladimir Putin. Like, is this what we're looking at? Yeah, that's good leadership. Um, we're going to talk about the Fed next. That conversation right here on the cable. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson's over in London. You are about an hour and change away from the Fed's rate decision. And then the presser uh, comes about half hour later. Let's get deeper into detail about what to expect. Uh, we're joined now by Anna Wong. She's chief U.S. economist uh, for Bloomberg Economics. Uh, previously, she worked at the Federal Reserve Board as a principal economist. So she knows her stuff. Anna, what are we going to see today at 2 o'clock? Yes, we expect the Fed to raise uh, the federal funds rate by 75 basis points. And we expect that Powell will, will um, say in the presser that, um, that another 75 bits could be on the table in July, depending on the evolution of data, and that uh, he will sound very hawkish. Um, how hawkish? Like 75 or potentially even more than 75 further down the road? Well, I think so. According to um, our my team's assessment, we think that if Powell does uh, seventy five bips today and another fifty bips in the next two meetings, then uh, the Fed will um, get back to the curve, like curve meaning where the yeah. Fed funds rate should be given the inflation forecast. So I, I don't think that a hundred bips would be uh, on the table yet. Um, but I think he's just going to sound very open-minded uh, today and will not next any ideas. But personally, I don't think 100 bits is on the, um, on the table. You don't. So how, if if Jay Powell, and, or if the, the statement or Jay Powell, that they want to give more hawkishness to the market, how, how is that categorized? And what may be a disappointment if they don't do that? <clears throat> you know, I think uh, hawkishness could be that even as the economy is cooling 
that they continue to do supersized hikes, like 50 bits or 75 bits. Like they don't need to ramp it up to 100 bits to be hawkish. The fact is, today we saw inventory data, and it is horrendous. It shows a general merchandise inventory to sales ratio, like the excess inventory is at the level that we saw in 2007. So the economy is cooling very fast, and in spite of that, if the Fed is still signaling 50 bits, 75 bits, that's super hawkish already. Yeah. So to, to the point about the data, if there is a danger that the Fed is, is basically hiking into weakness, therefore there is the potential that the sensible strategy may be to front load. Is this what we're seeing today? Is this front loading? Yeah, I, I interpret this as front-loading. Therefore, Bloomberg Economics did not revise the terminal rate up. The thing is, the economy is going to slow down uh, into next year. So it's just better to just hike all of that, that what needs to be done today to preempt the unanchoring of expectations. Um, the UMich Michigan sentiment index shows that expectations has ticked up a lot in, in in June, according to the preliminary forecast. So if they front load all of it, it could be that at least they're not hiking when it's really, really bad next year. Do, do you feel like they're hiking into weakness now in some capacity? I mean, I, I get that idea because you don't want to hike when things are really, really bad. But could they make things a lot worse right now? I think that the Fed and Powell is adopting this risk management approach to monetary policy, and they are thinking about the costs and benefits, right? The cost of uh, not hiking faster today is that expectations on anchor, which is what you saw in 1970s. And in that case, you will have to be like Volcker. You will have to go for that 100 bits if people's uh, expectations for inflation entrench and you start seeing uh, wage indexation to CPI becoming more prominent, pervasive across the economy. But we're not at that point yet. So if they do it now, they likely won't need to do it later. And the, the cost of you know doing that supersize hike, of course, is to cool the economy further. But I think from their perspective, the loss of Fed credibility and unanchoring yeah. of expectations is just too costly. And, and so that, that's why they decided to do the 75 bits today. Is the Fed still in the business of not wanting to disappoint the market? The, the Wall Street no. Journal article earlier on this week, like, we're back to the kind of classical days where the Fed would try and communicate just before meetings that it's kind of just trying to finesse and fine tune and micromanage expectations. Is that where we are right now? And Do you think the Fed's doing an OK job or do you think it's got a communication problem on its hand? Well, I think that the uh, I think that they they uh, they have sort of messed it up by, you know, the Powell nexting 75 bits yeah. back in the May meeting. So they have bungled the communications a bit. But I still have faith in, in the Fed that they will ultimately do the right thing. And even after a bit of struggle, they finally get to the point where they are doing what they should be doing, which is to catch up to the curve. And I think despite all the criticism today that we are going to hear that that Powell has walked back on this forward guidance, I still think that this is for the best for the economy, ultimately. Market question, maybe unfair. What would surprise the market? Like, where would we see the biggest risk in markets right now? Right now, um, 
I think the uh, the market has very uh, quickly priced in a very hawkish Fed. I mean, if you look at the euro dollars yeah. market right now, the terminal rate is like 4.3, which is way above what we likely will see in the SEP published by the Fed today. I think the SEP will show that uh, many people in the FOMC committee still have hopes that the Fed could uh, make a dovish pivot later this year. And so I think what the surprise now could be more the Fed is um, could be dovish in the like end towards the end of this year hmm. compared to what the market is pricing. What about next year? Are we are we full on cuts next year? Um, <laughs> next year feels very far away, but it? Um, <laughs> it seems like a recession probability is pretty high towards the end of next year. You know, Bloomberg Economics looked at you know, um, recession risk from all sorts of angles. We look at 15 uh, Fed tightening cycles. We look at models. We look at empirical evidence, and all seems to point to the uh, fact that it's we are likely going to see a recession towards the end of next year, if not earlier. And I think at that point, that that will um, help, um, you know, increase the rate of disinflation and help the Fed get to the price uh, stability target sooner. We're going to look forward to your coverage a little bit later on. Anna, thank you very much indeed. Great stuff. Really appreciate the time. Great to have you on the cable. Uh, looking forward to uh, you joining us further uh, as we work our way through. It's got to be an interesting Fed hiking cycle. So that's uh, wrapping things up. 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. here in the UK. That's when the Fed news is going to start to break. Got some great coverage lined up. This is Bloomberg.